1.17, the very last verse of Jonah chapter 1, and then we're going to be reading on through all of Jonah chapter 2 till verse 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those and uh, turn to Jonah 2. It's in page 451 in that Bible. That'll get you where you need to go. Jonah 1.17 to 2.10. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for, for you to take that and make it your own. Uh, we also, we have a, a little uh, connect card attached to the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, if, if this is your first time here, if you've been coming for a little while and you haven't gotten um, uh, connected with the, the church family here at Veritas, we'd love for you to take a moment, fill that out, um, and, and just let us know a little bit of information about you and how we can get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, we'd love to get together with you, grab a cup of coffee, grab lunch. Um, whatever it may be, uh, but we'd love to, to get to know you. There's also a, a little space for prayer requests on that Connect card. Uh, as Pastor JJ said, we want to be known as a people who pray, uh, and, and we want to be a people who indeed pray. And so uh, if you'd take a moment to fill that out, we'd love to know how we can pray for you this week. Uh, I know a, a lot of the time uh, I'll have conversations with people before and after the gathering and throughout the week, and they'll say, hey, if you could pray for this, uh, and that's a really good recipe for, for me to forget what you mentioned to me. Uh, and so uh, if you take a moment, just fill out the, the prayer request uh, part of the Connect card. That would be so incredibly helpful uh, to me and, and, uh, and to the other pastors so that we can uh, be informed in the way that we pray for you. All right, we're going to dig into Jonah 1.17 till Jonah 2.10. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. This is what the Spirit says to you, church. Let's listen with reverence and joy. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, um, what weighty words... Jonah prays to you here in this particular text. Lord, and 
Would you help us now as, as we have read and, and are going to reflect on and meditate on and apply this particular text? Would you help us, Lord, to be sober as Jonah is sobered here? Would you use this particular word to massage the truth of the gospel into our hearts so that where repentance is needed, there would be repentance. Where assurance is needed, there would be assurance. Would you convict and comfort? Would you break us and bless us? Would you pluck us up and plant us, Lord? Lord, uh, we, we trust that your word now will do exactly what you want it to do, that you will accomplish exactly what you want to accomplish here in our midst this morning through your word. And so in light of that particular promise and in light of you promising to do just that, we ask this morning that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We rest on you, we depend on you, we trust in you this morning. In Christ our Lord, amen. You can have a seat. Well, so far in the book of Jonah, we've been looking at Jonah's flight from the call of God. Uh, the Lord had called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach, and Jonah, rather than obeying and submitting to the Lord, he runs in the complete opposite direction. Rather than mounting his beast and riding it to Nineveh uh, in the east, he uh, boards a boat bound for uh, the west uh, uh, to Tarshish, which is uh, in, in modern-day Spain. But as we've seen, the very sea, the very boat on the sea, the very wind filling the sails of the boat on the sea that Jonah depended on to take him away from the presence of the Lord actually turned on him. Uh, a great tempest came upon the sea and threatened to break up the boat and the wind rather than gently filling the sails and carrying Jonah off to his uh, destination, Tarshish, threatened to break up this boat and, and, and threatened to bring Jonah and his shipmates down to a watery grave deep in the Mediterranean. And chapter 1 follows this descent of Jonah, this descent that we've been looking at, this descent into death, into darkness, into, de into depravity. We saw in Jonah 1.3 that Jonah went down to Joppa. We see that phrase used again and again in the book, and that Jonah, again in, in Jonah 1.3, it says that he went down into the ship there. In Jonah 1.5, we saw that Jonah had gone down into the lower part of the ship and was in a slumber so deep that the storm didn't wake him. And as we learned a few weeks ago, this, uh, this term translated as went down here is actually a Hebrew euphemism for death, for going down to the grave, into Sheol, into the netherworld. And where we left off is with Jonah in this grave. Like he's, he's in the lowest place that he could possibly go. And what we see is that it's actually an enormous grace to him. In Jonah 1.3, the sailors hurled Jonah off the, in Jonah 1.13 actually, the sailors hurled Jonah off of the boat and he went down into the sea per his request. And if you can imagine reading this for the first time, I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with the story, but imagine reading this for the first time. If you were reading this for the first time, you would think this is it for Jonah. Like he's a, he's a dead man. 
Uh, and that's actually what the author wants us to, to think. That's what the author wants us to see. In Hebrew thought, you see, the, the sea is associated with the grave. And, and going down into the sea is, is a euphemism for going down into the grave. And in all ancient Near Eastern views of the world, the sea was always associated with the netherworld, with Sheol, with the grave. And so as Jonah is hurled overboard here, symbolically, he's a dead man. And, and not only symbolically, but if you're tossed overboard in the middle of the sea, death is pretty much inevitable. And so if you're reading Jonah for the first time, you're thinking Jonah is going to drown and Jonah is going to die and he will never be seen again. But as we'll see, it's often here that the Lord meets us. It's often here in this place when, when we are certainly facing death, when it feels like our life could not go on, that the Lord meets us and the Lord delivers us. This is often the place that we see the Lord do his greatest work for us. This is often the place that we see the Lord do his most profound work in us and his deepest work in us and his most profound work through us and his greatest work for us. And so the Lord often puts these types of circumstances and situations into our lives in order to wake us up and to do this kind of work in us. And this is true in Jonah's case as well. This is what we see in Jonah as a result of, of this severe mercy given to Jonah by God, Jonah is sobered. He comes to himself and he prays and praises God for his wonderful grace and salvation. So to sum up our kind of big idea for this morning, we see that Jonah prays, sobered by Yahweh's severe mercy, and praises him for his sovereign salvation. Jonah prays, sobered by Yahweh's severe mercy, and praises him for his sovereign salvation. Look with me. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that in three stages. Jonah's sober prayer, Yahweh's severe mercy, and Yahweh's sovereign salvation. First, we see Jonah's sober prayer. And you can find Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2, 1 through 9. It's nuzzled in between two bookends found in verses 117 and Jonah 2, 10. In verses 117 and 2, 10, the author mentions Jonah's entry into the belly of the, of the great fish and then Jonah's exit three days later from the belly of the fish through vomiting. And in between, we find Jonah's prayer here, thanksgiving and praise to Yahweh for his great salvation. And as you read this particular prayer, uh, you start to see that, that it might even be appropriate to say Jonah's sober prayers, his sober prayers, because it seems that we have two prayers here in, in Jonah 2, two prayers spoken of. Uh, there's the first prayer that Jonah prayed when he was hurled overboard and in, in danger of drowning. And then there's the second prayer that he prays from the belly of the fish. We see that this is the case in the second prayer found here in Jonah 2 as he references the first prayer. Look at Jonah uh, 2, verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And so this is kind of a, a flashback here to when Jonah was drowning into the sea. Jonah's giving us, in this second prayer, kind of flashback to when Jonah was drowning into in the first prayer. The waves were, were crashing over him, and he's struggling to swim and to breathe and to keep his head above the water. And as he faced almost certain death by drowning, this brought him to the point of desperation wherein he called out to God. Obviously, if, if you're in the middle of drowning, uh, you couldn't pray an extensive prayer, so Jonah prays a very short one. We see it in verse 4. Jonah says, uh, when he's drowning, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, this is significant 
Because what does it mean to be in someone's sight? What does it mean for someone to look upon you? What does it mean for someone to set their sight upon you? It means that you're in their presence. It means that you're in their presence. And so in saying, I'm driven away from your sight, Jonah's saying, I know that I sought to flee from your presence. We saw that in Jonah 1. Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I know that I sought to flee from your presence, but now that I know this is where it leads me, it's too much for me to handle. I can't go on like this. I can't face it. I can't face life without your presence. And so that's what Jonah's saying. And then in a statement of bold trust, Jonah says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, the place where God's covenant pre- uh, presence dwells. I will again look upon the place where your covenant presence, I will worship you with your people. I will seek your presence once more. Now, this is a very different Jonah than we saw in the last chapter, isn't it? We've been looking at Jonah, Jonah 1, the last chapter, uh, Pastor JJ so wonderfully walked us through this text. We ironically saw an exemplary interaction with the Lord in the prayers of the pagan sailors. While we also saw, saw a less than exemplary, uh, a rather shameful actually, lack of interaction uh, with the Lord on the part of Jonah. In chapter 1, uh, there's kind of four stages. There's a crisis situation, the storm. And in response to this crisis situation, The sailors pray. That's the second stage. And then in response to the pagan sailors' prayer, the Lord answers their prayer and delivers them from this crisis situation. And then the fourth stage, they pray again, and they make sacrifices and vows to the Lord. So it's a kind of four-stage interaction. There's the prayer on the part of the sailors, uh, um, actually the crisis, and then the prayer on the part of the sailors, and then Yahweh's deliverance from the crisis, and then the sailors' prayer and sacrifices and vows. All the while in chapter 1, we don't see Jonah pray at all. The, The Hebrew prophet doesn't pray while these pagan sailors pray and call out to God. Jonah, actually, rather than praying and calling out to God and repenting and answering his call, he actually would rather be tossed overboard and meet certain death than pray and repent and answer the call of God. When the crisis situation, the storm comes, Jonah doesn't pray, doesn't ask for deliverance, he doesn't repent. But now, in Jonah's interaction in chapter 2 with the Lord, we see that it is directly paralleled to the sailors' exemplary interaction in Jonah chapter 1. We see, uh, actually see Jonah respond in an exemplary way like the sailors did in the previous chapter. In, chapter, in this chapter, chapter 2, Jonah meets a crisis situation. He's at risk from drowning. In the first chapter, it was the storm. This time, Jonah is drowning. That's a crisis situation. He's at risk of drowning here. And his response to this crisis situation is to pray and call out to God for deliverance like the sailors did in chapter 1. And then the Lord answers Jonah's prayer and delivers him by appointing this great fish to swallow him. And then in response, he he prays and promises to sacrifice and make vows to the Lord. It's very different Jonah here in chapter 2 that we've seen in chapter 1. We see a sobered Jonah. We see a Jonah who was in a spiritual stupor. We saw a Jonah who was digging his own grave, but it's almost like he's been giving smelling salts here. He's finally woken up. We finally see a Jonah who is ready to do business with God. So what can we attribute this change to? What can we contribute this change to in Jonah? What, 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 What causes Jonah to sober up here? 
And the only answer that I think we can conclude, based on what the text says, is that what caused Jonah to sober up and repent was Yahweh's severe mercy. Yahweh's severe mercy. The Lord, in his severe mercy, has brought Jonah low. Jonah speaks of this in his prayer, starting with verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Again, Jonah is giving us imagery here of Sheol, the grave, of being in the place of the dead. The waters surrounded Jonah to drown him and take his life. The weeds began to wrap around his head, giving us imagery of of one being wrapped in grave clothes and prepared for burial. And again, like we saw in chapter 1, this euphemism for death here in verse 6, Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now remember, Jonah wanted to be tossed overboard. Jonah wanted to die here. And so the Lord in his severe mercy gives Jonah a near-death experience. It's severe because it's painful. It's It's overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever been at risk of drowning before. It's a frightening thing. But it's merciful because it's in doing this that the Lord wakes Jonah up to his weakness, to his stupidity, to his sinfulness, to his senselessness. How many of you know that sometimes the Lord has to get to us through our skin? Sometimes he has to make us hurt so that he can heal us. Sometimes he has to drown us in order to deliver us. Sometimes he has to break us in order to bless us. But he is extremely merciful in doing so. He cuts like a skilled surgeon who only wounds to heal. He disciplines like a a merciful, loving father who only disciplines us and chastises us because he, he longs to bless us and teach us and help us avoid a greater pain and suffering in the life to come, a, a eternal pain and suffering, the lake of fire. As C.S. Lewis once said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Last week, uh, speaking of C.S. Lewis, last week my family and I started reading the Voyage of the Dawn Treader from the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And this particular book uh, contains one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. Uh, Upon the opening lines of the book, um, in in one of the most brilliant first lines ever, uh, in in an opening of the book, we meet Eustace. Uh, Lewis says, there once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) And in the early chapters of the book, uh, and on further into the story, you see what Lewis means. Uh, Eustace is unpleasant to say the least. He's clueless, he's cowardly, he's greedy and rude. Absolutely no one wants to be around uh, Eustace. Uh, Later, when he and the other children are in the magical land of Narnia, uh, something interesting takes place. Eustace, he falls asleep on a dragon's hole. Uh, Lewis says with greedy, uh, dragonous thoughts in his heart, he fell asleep on this dragon hole. And because of his greedy, dragonish thoughts, uh, when he wakes up from his nap on the dragon's hoard, he finds that he's been magically turned into a dragon. He's been magically turned into a dragon. And, it's, and it's, this, this is the most unpleasant thing for Eustace. He does not want to be a dragon. Like any normal boy, he doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to be a boy. And so he's left uh, longing for, for a chapter or, or, or two or more, he's, he's left longing for his, uh, a return to normalcy. He's miserable. And in fact, being turned into a dragon, this 
brings about somewhat of a transformation in Eustace. Uh, he begins to be more pleasant, even as a dragon. Uh, and, and he begins to work with the others rather than against them. And, and he begins to, to, to help them even with his uh, dragon strength and, and power. Uh, but his transformation is not yet complete until he comes into contact with Aslan. Aslan approaches Eustace, the dragon, one night, and he calls Eustace to follow him. And Eustace says, I, I, I knew that I'd have to do what he told me, so I followed him. And Aslan leads Eustace to, to this uh, huge pool, this, this, huge, um, this huge kind of well uh, at the top of this particular mountain. When they come to this pool, this well, Eustace thinks that he's supposed to get in. And so he goes to do so, and Aslan says to, to Eustace that before he gets in, he must undress. And this confuses Eustace. He's not wearing any sort of clothes. He's got, you know, his skin. And then Eustace realizes that uh, he, he uh, remembers that reptiles, and therefore dragons, have this sort of out, outer layer of their skin that they need to, that they can shed, that they can take off. And so Eustace tries and tries to remove this, this outer layer of his scaly skin by scratching and tearing and ripping into his skin, but it's all to no avail. Eustace is unsuccessful, and he tries and he tries and he tries until he finally just gives up, and he knows that it's no good. And at that point, Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was so afraid of his claws, I tell you, but I was desperate now. I just laid flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling my skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there I was smooth and soft as a peeled switch and softer than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It was the sharpest, most stinging pain, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. From this point of the story, Eustace is a completely new person. Rather than cowardly, he's courageous. Rather than greedy, he's gracious. Rather than unpleasant, he's pleasant. Revealing that sometimes it takes a severe mercy. Sometimes it takes pain. Sometimes it takes getting through our skin to bring about transformation. Sometimes we have to be broken in order to, and, and feel pain in order to be blessed and, and experience true pleasure in the Lord. Now, I know this is counterintuitive in many ways. We often think of God's blessing and mercy as being manifested to us in times of pleasure and ease and comfort and plenty. But on this side of glory, some of the most profound and merciful gifts of God come in displeasure, in discomfort, and in difficulty. Sometimes God's mercy comes to us through the claws of Aslan, tearing into us, causing us the worst pain we've ever felt. It's often in these times that God is sobering us up. He's giving us smelling salts. He's waking us up to our weakness and sinfulness and need for him. He's bringing us to the point where, like Jonah does in verse 2 here, we cry out to the Lord in our distress. 
Because it's when we're most aware of our weakness and sinfulness and need for him that we cry out to him with the strength. And it's there that the Lord meets us and does his best work in us. This is when he does his, his, his greatest work for us, his deepest work in us, his most powerful work through us. He puts these sorts of times in our lives to graciously wrestle us into submission. He puts these times in our lives to, to, to render us helpless and show us how weak we are so that we cast ourselves on him and depend on him completely for salvation. For this very reason that Charles Spurgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. Whether that wave is, is illness or depression or a broken relationship or something else entirely, the Lord often uses these things. And not only that, but he often appoints these things to act as a wave to bring us to himself and break us against him. The Apostle Paul says much the same as he writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Indeed, the Lord brought Jonah to this place of despair. He brought Paul and his cohorts to this place of despair. And he often brings us to this place of despair so that we can rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so there's no surprise that Jonah closes his prayer here with an acclamation of praise and thanksgiving and worship in Jonah 2.9, saying salvation belongs to the Lord. The depths to which Jonah had sunk brought him to the realization of his sinfulness, of his weakness. He comes to himself. Jonah is now sobered up through the severe mercy of God. And so he praises Yahweh and gives thanks to him for his sovereign salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord heard his prayer and delivered him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And you know, I think Jonah, he knew, he probably knew this as a concept before all of this took place, but at this point, because of the depths to which Jonah had sunk, both physically and spiritually, he knows this now in a way that he hadn't before, that this is true. Because he had rebelled and because he had faced the consequences of his rebellion and because he had been sovereignly rescued by this fish appointed by the Lord, he knew that salvation belongs to the Lord and salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And I want us to pay attention to this word here used in, in chapter 117. The, the author says the Lord appointed, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Some translations translate the word prepared. The Lord prepared and appointed this fish to save Jonah, to swallow Jonah. And that word actually continues to be important as we look throughout the book. Later in chapter 4, the Lord appoints a plant to shade Jonah. The Lord then appoints a worm to eat the plant. Then the Lord appoints an east wind to blow on Jonah. The point being that the Lord sovereignly ordains things like fish and flowers, weeds and winds, in order to bring us to himself. He he appoints these things as means to his end, his salvation. And Peter Williams says much the same. He says, each of these instances was a deliberate act by God to provide for the outworking of his purpose 
as the omnipotent God. He not only ordains the end, but also provides the means to that end. And when we look at the story of Jonah, with this in mind, we see it all over the pages of this book. Jonah 1.4, the, the Lord hurled this storm. Jonah 1.7, the Lord caused the lot to fall on Jonah. Jonah 1.15 says that the sailors uh, hurled Jonah into the sea, but ultimately Jonah attributes this action to the Lord. He prays in Jonah 2.3, Jonah says, you, you cast me into the deep. We see the Lord's sovereignty over each and every aspect of this story. We see it in Jonah's flight and his call from God. In the storm and the salvation of the pagan sailors. And Jonah being tossed overboard and the appointment of this great fish. And we will continue to see it in the coming chapters. The Lord never planned that Jonah would just receive this call and simply go to Nineveh. He sovereignly ordained and appointed each part of the story. Even the parts wherein Jonah suffered and hurt. And he did this for Jonah's sake and he did this for the sake of the Ninevites. He did this for the sake of Nineveh. And that bringing Jonah through this mess that he had gone through. He taught Jonah that if there's salvation for the likes of him, there could also be salvation for the likes of Nineveh. He did so that that Jonah would be prepared, like truly prepared, to go to Nineveh and to preach the grace of God that he had so experienced in the last two chapters. He went knowing that we are never too far gone to be rescued by the Lord of sovereign salvation. He went knowing that the Lord will relentlessly pursue those who are his, even if it requires bringing them through pain and suffering and trial to do so. In other words, he went knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. But the Lord not only did this for the sake of the Ninevites, he did this for the sake of Jonah. He did it so that Jonah would come to the stunning realization that the Lord will never let him go. He did it so that Jonah would come to the stunning realization that no matter how Jonah might try to run away, and that no matter what sort of trials and temptations that Jonah faces in this life, the Lord in his grace will never let Jonah go. Because the God that sent the storm, the God that had Jonah hurled overboard, the God who ordained that Jonah would risk drowning, the God who appointed the fish, did all so that, John, that Jonah would come to this stunning realization and would be assured of God's grace and mercy in his life. And we can, we can rest in that same good news this morning. Because the God who sends the storm into our lives, the God who sends waves of pain and suffering, the God who brings us to the point of despair like Jonah, the God who sovereignly ordains situations wherein we feel like our lives are over is the same God who came himself to save us. That that skin that the Lord often has to go through to get to us, he took on himself. And he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And not only that, but as the sinless man, he also suffered heartache and loss and pain. Isaiah 53.3 says that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Can you imagine that? And not only that, not only did he take on our skin and our sorrow, he also took on our sin. Like Jonah here, he went down and he, he actually died. He went down, down, down to death, even death on the cross, and he actually went to the grave. And unlike Jonah, he didn't sin his way down. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He went to the cross, he went to the grave because of Jonah's sin, and because of your sin, and because of my sin. He, the perfect son, took on the wrath of our holy God like a sinner, 
so that we sinners could take on the warmth of our holy God as sons. And he went down into the grave. And on the third day, he rose again, giving undeniable proof of God's great love for us, of his great deliverance, of his sovereign salvation. And this great love from God will never let you go. Like it never let Jonah go. It will never let you go. As Paul says in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We could go on or storms or drowning or depression or chronic pain or strained marriage or a wayward child. We could go on and on. And Paul's answer to all of this in in Romans 8.37 is no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, nothing can, nothing ever will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No matter what the waves and the billows that overwhelm you are. You can rest in this. The Lord and his sovereign salvation will never let you go. This is what sobered Jonah. This is what caused him to pray this prayer of praise and thanksgiving this morning. And let's join him in doing so. Father, we give you thanks for your your mercy and your grace. Father, and we even give you thanks for those those times of severe mercy, for those times of pain and suffering and hurt that wake us up to our need for you. And we ask, Lord, that that indeed we would be woken up to our need for you. Lord, that we would be uh, aware of our neediness, that we would be aware of our sinfulness. But not only that, but that we would also be aware of your sovereign salvation and that we would treasure your sovereign salvation and that we would rest on and depend on you for that sovereign salvation. Lord, bring us to yourself, whatever it takes. In Jesus' name, amen.